You'll open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to just focus on one chapter this evening as we look at a well-known account regarding the disobedience of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. You know, just a very, very quick and brief review as we think about the uh, major things pertaining to God that he has accomplished. You know, we are mindful of the fact that it is God that bore the children of Israel as on eagle's wings to Mount Sinai. It was God that daily provided them with their food. You know, manna in the morning and quail in the evening. It is God that chose to establish a covenant relationship with them that they could be his people, his children. It is God who manifested his awesome presence by powerful demonstrations when he descended on that mount to meet and speak with his chosen messenger and leader, Moses. It is God that allowed Aaron and his sons and 70 elders to eat in his presence as part of the confirmation of that covenant and allowed them to see some aspect of his presence. And it was God who spoke, who spoke to Israel, his holy commandments through his mediator. And so here we have a people that are in a covenant relation with God and they have witnessed amazing things. But in chapter 32, Israel disobeyed that God. Israel disobeyed their Redeemer, disobeyed their God by building an idol, worshiping it, and then had to suffer the consequences of those actions. When you think about just some of the preceding uh, things that kind of lead up to this chapter, before Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, For 40 days and 40 nights, before he does that, before he enters that ominous cloud, you know, that was a visible manifestation of God, to hear all that God would have to say further about his people, about what he expects, about what his laws entailed. What we see back in chapter 24 is that Moses recounted all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him up to that point. And what that would include would be chapters 20, or actually chapter 19 through 23. So before Moses goes up on the mountain, he recounted the Ten Commandments. He recounted all the additional ordinances that uh, uh, came with that. And then we're told he wrote it down. And so in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 7, that's that's what's occurring there. It is right before they kind of confirm the covenant, ratify the covenant with the eating of that sacrificial meal. It is also on that occasion, you know, after the ratification of the covenant, before Moses enters into that cloud on the top of Mount Sinai, that the 70 elders who have just completed this meal in the presence of God have just seen God in some capacity more so than the rest of the nation. That the elders are warned by Moses, wait. 
You wait for me and you wait for Joshua for us to return. We are coming back. We're going to return, but you wait until we get back. It is also on that same occasion that Moses chose Aaron and her and put them in charge to be judges. To basically, with any matter that the people came to of any concern, they were to be the ones who were to judge righteously regarding those matters. All of that precedes what transpires in chapter 32. Now, between chapter 24 and chapter 32, you've got God addressing you know, the priesthood, the clothing, all the tabernacle, all of those different things are being revealed and spoken to you know, uh, Moses while he's up on the mountain during this period of 40 days, 40 nights, I think. And so then you come to chapter 32, and what we have is they break the covenant. You know, the very covenant you know, that they had agreed to, and actually four times, four times, we see that they said, we will obey all that God says. We will obey all that God will speak to you, Moses. You see that in chapter 19. You see it again in chapter 20. And you see it twice in chapter 24. And so when you come to chapter 32, if you want to estimate the, uh, the time period, you probably are within something... You know, a little less than six weeks. And he's up on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. But you've got some days prior to that. So basically from the time that they initially agreed to be God's people, to submit to his will, to obey all his laws and his commandments, within that kind of six-week general period, uh, when the covenant is made, they disobey. They break the covenant. That's not very long, is it? Now, if you're sitting down just waiting for Moses to come back, it may, you know, times, sometimes when you're waiting, uh, you know, you, it seems longer than what it is. But that's besides the point. The point is, is it hadn't been that long, and they are already breaking the covenant. They're already turning away from God. And so they are without excuse. If you think about it, when God when Moses recounted the law that included the Ten Commandments. And in those Ten Commandments, that included two laws that says you're to have no other gods and you are to make no idols of any kind. Those two, you know, those two laws are part of the fundamental aspect of the Ten Commandments. And here we see in the breaking of the covenant, that's, you know, that's the two primary ones that they violate. So they are without excuse. And so before we kind of start talking about uh, you know, some aspects of kind of the repercussions of their violation, I, I want to start with you know, the question I have in your questions where I said, what was wrong with the hearts of the people? Now, there could be a number of answers that you could give, you know, your own word. So if you were going to say, okay, what is, okay, you, they, vi- they disobeyed these specific commandments. But I think it's more than just, you know, violating, you know, some decree. And there, there's a heart issue here, you know, that is at play. And so what would you, what would you say in your words, you know, is their heart problem? 
They've got heart problems, Israel does. And so what is it? It's not high blood pressure. According to Aaron, his response to Moses was the people who were set on evil, doing evil. Okay. And so you have, that, you have a heart that is kind of set or leaning toward e- evil things. Okay, Mitch? Righteousness was dependent on a godly leader. Okay, righteousness is dependent on a godly leader. And, and so him being present. Yes. And so, he, you know, so he's not present, and so now their, their weakness is evident. And so, you know, that indicates, Brother John. So that indicates, yes, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that one, where their reliance on Moses to basically sustain their own personal righteousness, which that's not going to work. Okay, Brother John. I'm just going to say, they, they just didn't believe God, and it showed it in right. many ways, including yes. this chapter. Yeah, and so you have it just a, a very you know, basic aspect of unbelief. You know, they did not have the kind of faith that needed to have. You know, God basically in his rebuke says they're an obstinate people. Uh, some other things you can maybe, words, uh, impatient, an impatient people, a disloyal people. I find it interesting when you, when you go and you read Luke's account in Acts 7 about this event, it does kind of give us a little bit uh, more uh, uh, description, perhaps, uh, of, uh, of what's going on. And so in Acts chapter 7, if you will turn there, you're just going to read just a few verses. Okay, and we'll start in verse 38. He says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Speaking of Moses. Moses is that one. And who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So remember Stephen? This is Stephen's sermon before he you know, lays down his life for the cause of Christ by stoning and so he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching Christ, and he's going back and he's reviewing the, the Jews, the Israelites' history. And what he brings up in their history was not all good. And so he's, he refers to this event where it indicates, you know, there's disloyalty, their unbelief, you know, they're leaning toward evil things, their dependence on another man to sustain their righteousness instead of depending on God. Uh, and so, he's, so in verse 39, our fathers, and listen to what, what Luke says by the Holy Spirit. Our fathers are unwilling to be obedient. Now, that's a little different, you know, kind of aspect to this same problem. They're unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So, you know, where, were the, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where was their treasure? Well, seemingly, it was partly back in Egypt. And so that's, and that plays into this whole heart problem of the Israelites. And so saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And so at that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. And of course, Stephen continues to expound on their unfaithfulness throughout their history. And so it does kind of give us some insight into, it's not just, okay, they, they violated two decrees, they, they shouldn't disobey. There was a heart problem going on here. And, and because of the, the, their hearts, that's why they so quickly turned away from God. And you go back to kind of compare it to what, what Mitch said, the idea of dependence, the righteousness being dependent on the leader. You know, what was the cycle during the period of the judges? 
You know, what happened every time the judge died? Back into wickedness. They went back to wickedness. And so you, know, you can see this problem, this heart issue, you know, really never got remedied in, in, in a general sense. You know, as we all know, there were faithful children of Israel, faithful servants of God. You know, there was, you know, there was always, you know, in a sense, a spiritual remnant. You know, but in a general sense, the nation as a whole you know, were just unfaithful. They were disloyal. They, were, they lacked faith. You know, Paul writes quite a bit about the unbelief of the Israelites. And it's the unbelief that caused them to not inherit the blessings and the promises that God had given them. And so you have in chapter 32, the, you know, here, Moses it seems to be, to be delayed. And they come to Aaron. They say, hey, we want you to make a God for us. Once again, they've just seen in this number is the 70 elders. In this number are the 70 elders who ate in the presence of God and saw God in a closer view than those down in the camp. And they're saying, where's Moses? You know, he, he's, you know, he, he was gone 40 days and 40 nights. You know, that's how we know how long. It is. So that's the, the extent. So basically a little over a month he's been gone. You know. David Creech, right there. You know. So, you know, he's gone for a month. <laughs> and and so, you know, so it's not a terribly long time, even though, you know, there is, it's not just a week, not just a day. And so, you know, but so quickly the Israelites turn away. And it's because the heart is the issue. And he's because this, he says, this man that brought us out of Egypt, you know, we don't, we don't know what's happened to him. And so Aaron gives the suggestion what they need to do. And I think it's interesting to think about the failure of Aaron here. The failure of Aaron. We don't talk a lot about Aaron. But you think about the failure of Aaron. You know, where Aaron and her were placed, were placed by Moses in a very important role. To be judges unto righteousness. And so, yeah, so you've got, as far as we know, we've got the first major issue is brought to Aaron, and Aaron buckles. He buckles under pressure, I guess. Uh, and so he, he advises them to, you know, basically, you know, take off all your, your, your gold your earrings, and, and they do that, and Aaron takes that, melts it down, makes it into a calf, and then Aaron says... Aaron said, now Aaron saw God. And Aaron says, after he oversees the working of this idol, he says, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And what you have here is Aaron is acting, not just the nation, but Aaron personally is acting in direct opposition to God's laws. He was not a good leader. Just because he was the first high priest didn't make him automatically a good leader, nor a good judge. And I find it interesting that uh, this whole idea, he says, you know, he sees, he makes an altar as well, and he proclaims, okay, tomorrow, you know, shall be a feast to the Lord. He's, he is introducing something totally. He's adding to, to God's law. And all of that was lawlessness. 
All of it was lawlessness. And, of course, they turn into this religious celebration. You know, and it says, you know, so the, the morrow came. They said, you know, they offered their burnt offerings. They offered their peace offerings. And they sat down to eat and drink. And he says they rose up to play. Now, the, the text does not expound explicitly that that in, involved immoral sexual acts. We know idolatry that was associated you know, often. At this point, we don't know if that's the case or not by the text. Yeah. But we do know that you know, it, the celebration involved loud singing and, uh, and involved dancing. And all of this is not to Jehovah. All of this is to the God that they made out of gold in the shape of a cow and said, this cow brought us out of, out of Egypt. And so you see you know, the kind of heart that they have. It is, it's, it's, a, it's a blind heart to me. David Tirado. I, I think it's the same example that we see in, throughout the Bible. The first human, Adam, he failed. He was infallible. You have the first high priest again. You have the first king again. It's a pattern of you know, the dependency on man. When they're first doing something, they stumble without mm-hmm. God. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Brother Reed here, Michael. Right here, Brother also, Aaron, uh, he, he, he fashioned that calf with a tool. Mm-hmm. And then when he went on later in the chapter, when Moses asked him what he do, and he really lied. Oh, he yes. said it just yeah. came out of fire. Right, yeah. He, he basically kind of separated himself from a sense of accountability to what transpired. And, and so, you know, Brother Danny, you know, Michael, right behind you. I think uh, another problem that they've got to a ba- very basic problem is that they're, they don't realize at this point there's only one God. Right. So if this God leaves them, and if Moses is God, they'll just get them another one. Right. That's a good point to bring out. You know, they have been influenced very much by the culture that they have been li- living in, not only in Egypt, but also even previously, you know, when you have you know, Jacob's sons you know, growing up and then leaving Canaan because of the famine. So you have a, a history where they have been surrounded by a culture of idolatry. And sadly, you know, it's, you know, it's a good point. It's evident that they have been influenced by the culture. And so there, you know, obviously there's a lesson for us in that. You know, you know we, we, we grow up and we live in a particular culture, whatever culture it is at the time of our life. You know, and it is, it is our struggle to be separate, yeah, and and we've got to work hard to remain separate and not be influenced in our thinking and our faith be affected by that. That's a good point to bring out. The idea they they did not see Jehovah as the one true only God, and the others are not really gods at all. And so you know, so they they you know worship an idol, and so you know there in verse seven and following God, God is seeing this. Now, remember, now Moses doesn't see it until he comes down off the mountain. You know, he's up in this cloud. And so he's not, he, he's not seeing and hearing what's going, down, going on down below, but God does. And so he tells okay, Moses, you go down there right now because, he says, the people you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
the people you have brought up. Now, that, they, they go back and forth with that. But I find that somewhat interesting where, you know, God, you know, who is reacting to the scene below, describes them as Moses' people that Moses brought out. And I think what it does, it implies very quickly the seriousness of breaking the covenant. You know, God has said in chapter 19, you keep my covenant. You obey me. You do what I say. I, you know, you will be my possession. You'll be my people. I will make you a holy nation. I'll make you a kingdom of priests. I will bless you in all these different ways. But you, you've got to be faithful to the covenant. You've got to obey me. And here, you know, in a matter of, you know, of some weeks, they're violating that covenant. And they've forgotten, you know, who Jehovah really is. And God is angry. Now, is God just? Well, yes, I believe he is just. You know, and his reaction is a just reaction as well. But I think it does indicate you know, the fact that the violation of the terms of this covenant you know, made it such at this point, at this point, Israel could be regarded as no longer as God's people. God had every right to cast him aside. And that's what he wanted to do. He's so angry with them. And it is a righteous anger. It is a just anger. This is not the first time God has been dealing with the obstinacy of these hearts. Hearts who lean toward idolatry because, you know, they've been influenced by their culture. And so God basically says, as you know there in chapter 32... And verse 9 and 10, he tells Moses, okay, I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And God could have done that. He could have done that. And he still would have been faithful to his promise. He would not have violated because Moses is a descendant of Abraham. He could have done that. But, you know, that's not what God does. But I think it's also what God, in doing this, he basically puts the future of Israel in whose hands? In Moses' hands. And what you see here, you see, you see, on the one hand, you see the character of Aaron. And that's not a very good picture. But on the other hand, you see the character of Moses. And what a contrast this is. You think about the idea, you know, what did Aaron do for the people? Well, Aaron led the people down a path of destruction and separation from God. Moses, on the other hand, stepped up, intervened as a mediator. Moses, in his sense, saved his, saved his people. Aaron destroyed them. And so you've got you know, Moses you know, interceding here in verses 11 through 13 uh, and uh, you know, basically trying to calm the anger. Uh, Tali here in the... I was going to say, he also prayed for Aaron, it says Deuteronomy 9. Right. But he interceded on behalf of Aaron, and not just on behalf of Aaron as well. Yes, and that's a good point to bring out, because Aaron, need, Aaron needed intercession, just like the nation in general needed intercession. Brother John. It shows something about... Moses and about God because it showed Moses' humility. 
Yes. And God said, we, I'll wipe all them out and then you'll be the father of the nation. Right. But he, he didn't want to do that. Another thing it shows, you think all the way back when God chose Moses and Moses made every excuse in the world. Mm-hmm. And most of us would have said, well, that, that's not the guy for this job. Right. But God knew he was the right man, and this is one of the things that proves it, I think. That's a good point to bring out, to show the contrast uh, between Moses then and now, and to, and to see his growth and see his maturity. And in, in, in that point, and that's what God wants to see in all of us, where, you know, where in the past we may have shown you know, some areas of immaturity in our faith or in our walk with God, but... If we'll trust him and listen to him and serve him, God will mold us and shape us into warriors for the cause of Christ. And so that's a good point, a good point to bring out. As Moses is, is interceding here and basically tr- trying to calm, <laughs> calm God's, you know, you know, from this anger, kind of shift his focus you know, f- you know, from the calamity that he's considering. You know, where God's addressing Moses is, you know, you know, your people who you brought up have corrupted themselves. Moses turns around, you know, that and now approaches God and saying to him, first of all, it's your people and you brought them out of Egypt. And, they're, and, and, they're, and that's true. Moses was simply a servant. Moses was a steward. You know, you know Moses was a messenger. Yeah, but ultimately it was God that did it. It was God's power that delivered. And uh, Moses says, these are your people and you saved them and brought them to yourself by your hand, not my hand. Uh, Second point he brings out is, okay, the Egyptians will claim that you brought Israel out just to destroy them. And basically, so you don't want the Egyptian to to be blaspheming your character and thirdly, he says, you made a promise. <laughs> and you think about, you know, the, you know Moses, you know, uh, you know, very wisely as a mediator, intercessor for his kinsmen is, is approaching God, in a sense, on God's, you know, you know, foundation here. God did bring him out. And they were his chosen people. And... And God was concerned about how the nations saw him through you know, the example of the Israelites. And God had made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, you know, that he would multiply the descendants and, and bring that nation into the, into the promised land. And so you know, Moses presents a very logical, reasonable, sound defense. That calms God's anger, soothes, soothes the indignation of God, where he 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 backs off that initial calamity, you know, and and so he you know, does not harm them at this point. And so Moses goes down; he's got the two tablets of stone, you know, which uh, have been written by God, engraved by God on uh, on the front and the back, you know. And so, you know, so if you think of the, you know, the idea of the Ten Commandments, you've got you know, the, you know, the, the five on one stone, five on the other, and just on the... Well, no, the, the tablets of stone were written all over on front and back. So it wasn't just the ten on those two stones. It was all the ordinances that God had before them. And so Moses is bringing that down. And, of course, as they're coming down, they're coming down off that mountain... 
out of that, you know, out of that cloud that uh, hovered there, which they went into to be in the presence of God. So you've got Moses and Joshua now coming out. You know, Joshua says, hey, I think I hear war cries. Moses says, no, that's not what you're hearing. You're, you know, it, it's more like singing. And, but see, at this point, all they know is what God said. So when Moses gets down off the mountain and he approaches the camp, he sees it for himself. And what does he do? He took action. And the first, what's the first action he does? No, that's not the first thing he does. I caught you. Yeah. He threw the stones down. He threw the, the covenant stones down and shattered them, it says. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just imagine, you know, I always picture these are not, you know, thin stones to have engravings on them. But uh, here Moses takes these two tablets of stone that hold, you know, the law of Moses, God's law on all of the law. And he throws it down and they're shattered. You know, and so you, you, kind of, you, see, a, you see a man who uh, is reacting. This is his first reaction when he sees the actual events of them having a golden calf that they're offering sacrifices to and worshiping. So let me ask you this question. You know, was the breaking of the stone tablets an out-of-control reaction, or was it to depict what Israel was actually doing in the breaking of their covenant? I never thought about that until you know, I was you know, doing some reading and that idea that this may not have been an out-of-control reaction when he took those tablets and threw them and shattered them. It may have been Moses' way to depict what they have just done. And that's just something to think about. But another thing that made me think about Moses is this, this action. It says, you know, of course, it says, you know, that when he came, Moses came near, and, and he says, Moses' anger burned. But up on the mountain, whose anger was burning? God's anger was burning. It was burning. And what does Moses do? Whoa. Whoa. Let's, 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 cool, you know, let, let, let's kind of calm that anger down. And, and Moses succeeds in that. But when Moses gets down to see it for himself with his own eyes, now his anger is burning. You, have you ever been in a situation where you heard it? Oh, that's, ter- that's terrible. But when you see it for yourself, it's like, it's, it's so much wor- worse, more worse. And I think that's kind of what's going on here is Moses is reacting to this. And I would suggest to you that what, what is going on here is Moses is reflecting God's anger. Moses reflecting Jehovah's anger. He's just witnessed the anger of God in the cloud. He knows what God wanted to do. The Israelites don't. Moses did. And now when he sees it for himself and his anger you know, rises to the top, you know, I think it's a reflection of, go back to the, what you know, John said, the character of Moses and, and, and us seeing him in all these different facets you know, yes, he, he, he was a humble man. He was, he was a meek leader for God. But also he was one who, you know, definitely experienced righteous anger when it was due. 
And so, you know, Moses, and then now you get to the, you know, the, uh, what he continues to do is work at the consequences that now follow upon the Israelites. And so the first thing that he has the Israelites do after he, you know, destroys, defiles the golden calf, you know, and he takes that and he, you know, burns it, melts it, and grinds it up and, and throws the... Uh, uh, the powder, uh, the gold powder in, into their water supply and he makes them drink it. Why do you think he made them do that? Why did, why did he take this stuff and throw it in the water that was their drinking supply and then made them drink it? I think he wanted to show that there was no deity there at all. Okay. I think that's a good point. Because this is just uh, a statue that you made with your hands. And of course, Luke brings that out in, in Acts 7. That they worship what they made with their hands. And so to illustrate that there's no power in this. Okay, Brother John? There's no way they were going to reconstruct that thing. Okay. You're not, yeah, you're, and you're not going to take this stuff and, and make something else with it in a wrong way. Okay? Anyone else? Say that again, David. Okay, yes. And so he's trying to teach them. You know, there's a number of, there's a number of lessons I think you can, you can draw from this. So because they do need to learn to humble themselves to God. Yeah. And, and that their, their, their trust and their faith needs to be on God and they need to humbly serve him no matter what. An idea that came across me is, is this idea, you know, you know, which, you know in normal, say, if, if someone threw, you know, you know, ground up metal into your uh, into your water supply. You know, you know, would you drink that willingly? Why? Why would you not drink water that has been make you sick? Okay, it could make you sick because, and you see, this water is what? It's tainted. It's contaminated. It's polluted. And so here, here Moses make, he does this, and he makes the people drink. Water that's been polluted by the idol. What had they done? What had they done to themselves? They had polluted themselves. They had polluted themselves when they turned away from God and began, began to worship this idol. And so, yes, you know, they, and Moses is trying to teach them, I think, a number of lessons that we can draw from this. You know, sin is never a small matter. Sin is never a small matter. And sin, every time, no matter what it is, sin every time pollutes and it defiles what is to be pure. Your drinking water needs to be pure. We want, we want good drinking water. And if, if, and if, we, if we know it's polluted, we, we stay away from it. And, and Moses is teaching the people that you know, they had been called out of Egypt, delivered out of bondage, you know, provided for, taken care of, and made God's holy people. God sanctified them. And what did they do? They go and pollute that relationship. They pollute the life that God had sanctified. And Moses needs to teach them that lesson. They needed to be aware of the seriousness of their deeds. 
Kind of tying in with what, what uh, Tali brought out that when uh, Moses needing to uh, intercede for Aaron because Aaron is a big factor in all of this. You know, the nation is responsible. Everyone's responsible for themselves. But Aaron uh, takes a, a very unique resp- you know, role of accountability here because of the role that he was placed in. And so Moses goes to question his brother. This is his older brother. And basically, said, what have you done, Aaron? What did you do? What did these people do to you that you would go this far and lead them down this path? And as, as we all know, Aaron begins to try to offer this, this kind of lame excuse, you know, which basically does what? His lame excuse, what, what, what does Aaron do with the blame? Huh? He passes it on. And it's like kind of what David brought up earlier, you know, starting with Adam. You know, and going throughout history, so many, you know, we see a number of Bible characters who, when confronted with their, their sin, with their bad choices, you know, and how they want to somehow shift the blame. I think there's a tendency, we all have to work not doing that. Uh, there's, uh, I think it also involves an attempt, you, know, you think of the idea of not only accountability, but also avert the anger. Because you know, Aaron, you know, Aaron says, don't, don't be angry with me. <laughs> and so, you know, so this whole shifting of the blame is, one, has accountability. Secondly, he doesn't want to get the full brunt, the full blow of Moses' anger. You know, but it doesn't, it doesn't excuse him. Because it goes on to say you know, that when describing, you know, after he talks to, to Aaron, and then Moses is seeing what is still going on. And just imagine this now. Moses come down. Good hand up. Uh, uh, Michael over here. Uh, Moses come down. You know, stones are broken. Uh, idol is, 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 is destroyed and thrown in the water. They're made to drink it. Uh, Aaron is, 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 is dealt with. And then it says, Moses saw the people. He says, see them out of control for Aaron. Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. See, the, no matter what his excuse was, Aaron was responsible. That's what to Aaron could have nipped it in the beginning. Yes. Whenever they made that request him, he could have set them straight right then. There's a no. You're violating... Right. We'll be violating the covenant that you just made. Do you not remember yes. the oath that you made? Right. And he could have stood his ground. and The people still could have rose up against him. But Yeah, he, he could have taken the right stand and, and tried to direct him down the right path, which he doesn't. You know? and, and that's why you, you see the seriousness of, of you know, what Aaron does here and why you know, it, he is so accountable and why, go back to what Tali said, why he personally needs to be interceded um, you know, by Moses you know, and not just be you know, one, with an, one with the nation because his role had greater accountability. You know? and, uh, and so you know, we, need, we need to recognize that in, in this account. Um, but you know, like I say, the, the consequence of the sin, it just, it just, it, you see all these different facets of it um, because of this out-of-control behavior uh, that is still going on. And the, the men are unrestrained. You know, Moses says, who is on God's side? Who is on Jehovah's side? And it says, sons of Levi came to Moses. 
And Moses directs them, basically, okay, take your sword and you go throughout the camp and you kill the guilty. You go throughout the camp and you kill everyone who's guilty. And how many men died that day? 3,000 died that day. Same number that was saved on the day of Pentecost. But 3,000 died because of bad leadership, unbelief, and unrestrained conduct. Was, Was this simply an act of vengeance? I think like you said, it's, it sobered up the party atmosphere. They, they didn't get it when he broke the tablets. They didn't get right. it when he crushed the statue and made them drink it. They're still unrestrained and celebrating mm-hmm. this idol. And so he needed to, the consequences had to, to match their, their actions. Right. You know, I, I think that's a good point to bring out. Because obviously the, you know, it hasn't hit home yet. You know, the gravity of this, the enormity of this, and, and so, you know, it has to be put to a stop. And so what we have here is basically the, you know, the Levites, you know, acting on behalf of God, carrying out his righteous anger. Instead of wiping the nation, you know, off the face of the earth, you know, through Moses and the sons of Levi, God executed those who were guilty. Now the chapter you know, kind of ends with a, a phrase very quickly we'll, we'll touch on. Uh, we'll stop with this. Uh, but uh, in verse 35 it says, Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And so there's some question exactly what this is talking about. Uh, you know, uh, uh, some versions some may say plague. You know, so that, you know, is this another plague in addition to? Or is this a summation of what transpired? Or is this a promise of what God, what God will do in the wilderness wanderings? Because God's going to continue to judge you know, the people all along the way. And so there's, there's somewhat a question exactly where verse 35 fits in, in, in the whole unfolding of the events uh, on this day. Yeah, because you have the people you know, being made to drink the water and then you have the 3,000 that are executed. You know, by God's justice through his servants. Uh, and so that's just a, a question for you to kind of consider. But as we end, just you know, I want to end with this thought as you know, Moses, gonna, he comes back and he, he's going to pray to God again because the sin still needs to be addressed. Okay, you know, you know they have sinned greatly against God. The sin needs to be atoned. It needs to be forgiven. And so Moses is going to intercede further. And, uh, and, of course, Moses is willing even to lay down his life with them if that was necessary. But God said no to that. And what we do come out from this is see that God says, Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. And so early on we see God revealing that God holds each man accountable for himself. Individual accountability. And you see that in Ezekiel 18. You see that in 1 John 3. You see that in 2 Corinthians 5. And all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And God is the one who will be the judge. The Father and the Son. 
They're the ones who will be the judge on, on that. But you see individual accountability you know, plays a major role in the consequences of their sin. Any final, any final comments, uh, thoughts to be shared before we end? Sister Tolley. Yes. Right. Good point to bring out. Someone else? Okay, Dan? This chapter is full of object lessons. And speaking of the breaking of the tablets, I think it is on track about the lesson of what the people have just done in the fall. But at the same time, it's also similar to some parallels we see in the Testament, especially in the Romans, that the law could convict you of sin. Right. And, and similar to the uselessness of the priesthood of Aaron, not only on that occasion, but as a Hebrew seven, ultimately the priesthood of Aaron did not save anyone. Right. It was required to have a mediator on the principles base, not on the scribe basis. Similar to what this ultimately got to us. Yeah. Good point to bring out. Appreciate very much everyone's thoughts. Thank you.